All right. Good evening. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 3? And for the sake of the new folks here in this facility and watching online, let me just give you a quick recap. Uh, in our study in Romans, we are currently in the second major section of the book, a section that runs from chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. This section is dealing with one of the most important doctrines, if not the most important doctrines of the Christian faith, the doctrine of justification. And in this section, as we have been looking at it, uh, Paul is basically telling us how fallen sinners can be made right with God, which means how they can have fellowship with him now and be accepted by him into heaven someday. Now, we want to just read verses 27 and 30 to get a running start on tonight's study, but Paul said in verse 27, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So after Paul finished his statements in this section of Romans 3, uh, starting with verse 21 and climaxing in verse 28, where he said once again, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Uh, at this point he anticipated that his Jewish readers would conclude that what Paul was saying is that the law was abs the uh, law has absolutely no value and should be discarded as worthless to which he responds in verse 31 do we then make void the law through faith certainly not on the contrary we establish the law guys as far as salvation is concerned the gospel does not replace the law because the law was never a means of salvation in the first place the uh, purpose of the law was to present God's perfect standard for salvation, a standard that was impossible for sinners to live up to. So then why give the law to man if we couldn't keep it for salvation? Because the law was intended not to make us righteous, but to show us our sinfulness. And once the law did its job, once the law condemned us as hopelessly lost and guilty sinners, it drove us then to Jesus for justification by faith, because after we were made to see that there is no way we could be perfect. See, that's the idea. Uh, to get into heaven by keeping the law, you have to be perfect. And a lot of folks don't realize that. They think that if they're just good enough, better than most, they'll make it in. And Paul is basically laying out how impossible it is to be saved by the law. You have to be perfect. And once a person understands that, once the law has done its job, the law, it, it's like we've said like a mirror. You look at your face in the mirror, the mirror tells you your face is dirty. But you don't take the mirror off the wall and start rubbing it on your face to clean your face. It drives you to water and soap to do that. The law shows us our sin, but it can't, it can't forgive us our sins. It can't wash us of our sins. We need the blood of Christ to do that. We need to, be, to run to Jesus, right? Once we realize that there's no way we can get to heaven by this way, we cried out in our hearts, is there another way? I can't be perfect. I can't. I break these laws every day of my life. There's no way I can get to heaven by keeping uh, your commandments and laws and so on. Is there another way? Fortunately, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. But let me say something that may throw you now. Those who put their faith in Jesus for justification, listen, have established the law. So what, what do you mean? That's what Paul said. We don't make void the law. We establish the law through our faith. Um, what, what do we mean? Uh, that when we put our faith in Jesus for justification, uh, basically we've established the law. And, and by that we mean that uh, those who put their faith in Christ, they prove that the law was necessary. The law was necessary for salvation. Look, it is God's perfect standard of righteousness. It is what we need to get into heaven. The problem is we couldn't keep it perfectly to save us. We couldn't keep it perfectly for it to save us. However, Jesus lived a perfect life with regard to the law. 
And when we put our faith in him for salvation, listen, we are placed in Christ. In Christ. That means we have fulfilled the law for righteousness by virtue of entering into Christ, who himself lived a perfect, sinless life. And then, of course, went to the cross to pay our debt, allowing God to have a legal basis for declaring us righteous. Remember, the word justification is a legal term um, used in a court of law. And the idea is that for God to legitimately and lawfully declare us just, there had to be a basis for it. Jesus Christ paid the price. He was the basis. And in him we are justified and, listen, accepted by God through our faith in Christ. Ephesians 1, 6, he made us accepted in the beloved one. And we've talked about this before. Let me just say it quickly again. To get into heaven, we have to be perfect. We're not perfect. So there's no way we could ever get saved in and of ourselves. But Jesus lived the perfect life. And the idea is once we put our faith in him, God takes us and supernaturally, invisibly, puts us in the body of Christ. Now, God no longer sees us. He sees Jesus. And now everything that Jesus is, we are. He's perfect. In God's eyes, we're perfect. He's blameless. In God's eyes, we're not blameless. Uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, practically, no, we're not. Blameless, perfect, holy, that kind of thing. Uh, and we have these two positions, the uh, eternal and then the, the practical. Uh, yes, in Christ positionally, I'm perfect. I'm just. I'm sinless. But practically, no, I still live in this body of death on the earth. And uh, so we need to keep drawing close to Jesus every day for him through the Holy Spirit to live his life through us. But we're accepted by God now in the beloved one in Christ. Uh, you know, there are Christians who uh, have been taught for some reason that the law is evil. Uh, the law is no good. Um, and so on. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, look, I haven't come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill it. We couldn't do it, but he did. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 1. Yeah, I like this um, passage uh, on this topic because Paul really gives us the true purpose of the law. 1 Timothy 1, starting with verse 7. He's talking about these people and probably... Uh, Jewish, maybe the Judaizers he had in mind, uh, but they're going around teaching the law, and uh, he said, look, they, they desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. They don't even know what they're talking about. But we know that the law is good if one uses it, what? Lawfully, properly, the way God designed it to be used. Verse 9, knowing this, that, that the law is not made for a righteous person but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Paul was preaching the gospel of grace. There was no law in his message because he understood the law. He was, a, he was a theologian. He understood what the purpose of the law was. And he's telling us that, look, the law is not evil. Uh, Romans 7.12, the law is holy and righteous and good. It was never the problem with the law. The problem was with us. We couldn't keep it, right, because we are fallen sinners. But the law is still good. It still has a purpose. What is it? It shows sinners their sin to drive them to Jesus. It's not for a righteous person. Righteous people don't need external laws written on tablets of stone because God has written his laws in our hearts and we want to obey God from the heart as believers, right? You don't have to turn to these, but I'll read them to you quickly. Romans 3.20 Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified, declared righteous, uh, you know, be taken to heaven. No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And finally, Galatians 3.24 and 5. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We don't need a tutor anymore um, to drive us to Christ. Once we have received him, we are where God wants us to be. We've arrived in Christ. We're saved. We don't need the law anymore. We'll talk more about that in our study in Galatians on, uh, on Sundays. 
Now, as we transition uh, from chapter 3 into chapter 4, the unsaved Jews in Rome would immediately have asked this question. How does this doctrine of justification by faith relate to our history? I mean, Paul, you say that this doctrine is witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Well, let's go back earlier than the law and the prophets. What about Abraham? Let me stop here to say this. The Jews were very proud of their family tree, their heritage. And even though Paul is writing to believers in Rome, he directs a good portion of this epistle to the unsaved Jewish community living there. It was substantial. There's a lot of Jews living in Rome. In verses 21 to 31 of chapter 3, Paul introduces them to the doctrine of justification by faith. And now in chapter 4, he's going to illustrate justification by faith through the life of their greatest patriarch, Abraham. Abraham was one of their heroes in the Jewish faith as recorded in their scriptures, which they call the Tanakh, we call our Old Testament. But he was the father not only of the Jewish nation of Israel, but Paul tells us in verse 17 of Romans 4 that Abraham was also the spiritual father of the Gentile nations as well. But listen, the rabbis taught that Abraham was chosen by God and blessed by God because he perfectly kept the law of God even before Moses received it. Okay, you say, well, how does that work? Well, the rabbis taught he kept it intuitively. He just knew what the law was going to be and how to live it. Okay, that's what they believe. Even before the law was given to Moses, Abraham kept it perfectly, intuitively. The Jews believed that Abraham was sinless before God. So you have to kind of know this background before we get into what he's talking about. But the Jews believed that Abraham was sinless before God, that he was, he was an absolutely righteous man, which is why God chose him to be the father of the Jewish nation. In three different places in the Bible, he's referred to as the friend of God. No wonder the Jews were very proud to be known as the children of Abraham. Verse 1 of Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Um, what Paul is really asking them in this verse is this. What did Abraham our father discover as far as his own human ability was concerned? Did he find that he could be saved through his works in human effort? That's the gist of what verse 1 is saying. Verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now we're going to read verse 3 about 18 times tonight, but it's central to what we're talking about. Okay, But you see, Jewish pride concerning Abraham was based on the belief that he was justified, in other words, made right with God by his works. That's what they believed. But Paul is arguing that if Abraham was justified by his works, well, he would then have something to boast about. And in fact, guys, many of the Jewish rabbis taught that Abraham was such a righteous man that he had the right to boast in his accomplishments and that God's promise to Isaac in Genesis 26, verses 4 and 5 was proof of it. I'll read it to you. I have to turn to it. Genesis 26, verses 4 and 5. God said, I will make, talking to Isaac now, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And so they interpreted this to mean that Abraham was blessed by God because of all the good things he did. All the good things he did. Uh, there's a set of writings that the Jews esteem called the Mishnah. The Mishnah, which many Jewish scholars believe dates back to the time of Ezra, about 450 B.C., the Mishnah is a collection of opinions and really oral traditions of the rabbis on the law, a commentary that they put together to help them interpret and understand their scriptures. In the Mishnah, the rabbis interpreted Genesis 24, verses 4 and 5 like this. We find that Abraham our father performed the whole law before it was given. For it is written, 
He obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. In other words, the rabbis taught that Abraham was justified because he did all these good things. And as such, he earned the favor of God uh, by his works and obedience. And so that was the Jewish position with regard to Abraham, which Paul is addressing in this section of his epistle to the Romans. Again, they believed Abraham was justified because of what he did. You might be thinking, but wait a minute, Pastor, doesn't James say that Abraham was justified by what he did, by what he did in offering up Isaac? Well, turn to James chapter 2. Let's read verse 14 first, James 2. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Well, this was such a um, controversial, such a, Martin Luther rejected James as being non-canonical. He didn't believe it was inspired. He didn't believe it belonged in the Bible because Martin Luther believed James was teaching salvation by faith plus works. As we have said before, James isn't teaching salvation by faith plus works. He's teaching a faith that works. Uh, let's be clear as to what James is saying here. Now, we know in Genesis 15, verse 6, which James quotes, that God made Abraham a promise concerning the Messiah, uh, that from Abraham's own descendants, from his own body, the seed would come, Messiah, Jesus. And that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed because anyone who has faith, as we said, that Abraham was not just the father of the Jewish nation, he was also the spiritual father of the Gentile nations. Because anybody from around the world that puts their faith in Christ, they don't have to be Jewish. They are now become children of Abraham by faith and members of the family of God. But we know that in Genesis 15, 6, God made Abraham this promise that he would have so many descendants through this Messiah. People all over the world we know would be saved. And Abraham believed God's promise, and because of his faith, he was declared righteous by God. And by the way, of course, that's how all of us are declared righteous by God. We believe in God's promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the gospel, and he declares us righteous as well, saved. But listen, after God declared Abraham righteous in Genesis 15, verse 6, 35 years passes, and we come to Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis 22, God told Abraham to take his son Isaac, take him to on a three-day journey to Mount Moriah and offer him on a mount there. And Abraham obeyed God. He and, Ab uh, he and Isaac and a couple of servants went the three-day journey to Moriah. And uh, they walked up this mount. And Abraham built an altar and laid and the wood on it. And Abraham laid Isaac on the altar and was about ready to plunge the knife into his chest to offer him to God, and God stopped him and says, don't, don't hurt your son. I know you love me now. And there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns, and Abraham wound up uh, offering that to God as a, uh, as a burnt offering. James is not teaching that Abraham was saved by his faith plus his works because he was declared righteous or saved 35 years before he actually offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. Um, all James is saying is that Abraham's faith coupled with his works, uh, again, obeying uh, God's command to offer his son, made his faith perfect or mature. Or to put it another way, that Abraham's faith was perfected by his obedience. Uh, the Greek word means to, brought to fulfillment or shown to be genuine. By, by his works, his faith was shown to be genuine faith. All right? As we talked a few weeks ago, there is... A true faith and false faith. Genuine faith and counterfeit faith. There's a lot of folks that have false faith. Well, they believe with their head, of course, in the facts about Christ, but they have no works. Their life is not being lived for Jesus at all. So they don't really have saving faith. 
And that, guys, is really what James is talking about. Abraham's faith was perfected, brought to fulfillment, or shown to be genuine by his works. Uh, not, again, that, salva that the salvation of Abraham was a combination of his faith plus his works. I mean, they were, again, separated by 35 years. All James is saying is this. Abraham's actions in obeying God demonstrated that his faith was real. That his faith was real because it obeyed God. It wasn't mere head knowledge. It wasn't just empty, an empty profession of, of words. And that's something that we all understand, but there's a lot of folks out there that don't. They don't get it. They think because they believe in Jesus, uh, they went to Awanas when they were kids in Sunday school, and uh, they've always believed. You hear people say when you witness them, oh, I've always believed in Jesus. Well, so is the devil, for that matter. But the idea is that true saving faith is coupled with works. Uh, that, that just the, that's the fruit, right? Um, I'll just have you write these down. We've already looked at them numerous times in our study. John 10, verses 27 and 8. Jesus, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them intimately, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. Uh, how do we know what one of Jesus' sheep? Are we following him? Are we following him? James 2.18, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Jesus said, you know them by, by the fruit. Uh, the works are a fruit of our faith. Ephesians 2.10, for we are, after Paul talked about us being saved by grace through faith, he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One pastor said this, and I quote, he said, you know, you're truly born again when you find yourself obeying God. We're not saved by obedience, but our, our obedience proves we are saved for true faith works. So to say it again, the rabbis believe Abraham was justified because of what he did. And Paul's going to destroy that misconception by taking them back to the place in Genesis where God originally pronounced Abraham righteous, Genesis 15, verse 6. In fact, as we have said before, uh, all of Romans 4 is really in, um, uh, an exposition of Genesis 15, verse 6. Look at Romans 4, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And there Paul is quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. But not only that, guys, not only was Abraham at that moment justified by his faith, he became at that moment uh, a model for all of us uh, in how to be justified before God. And it's not running around doing all kinds of religious things. It's believing just like Abraham believed God. It's the same thing. He became a model. A prototype, if you will, for all of us uh, of justification by faith apart from works. This righteousness, Paul points out, was not a reward for Abraham's obedience. It doesn't say that God declared Abraham righteous because he was faithful in going to church or keeping God's commandments or even the fact that he was circumcised. That's how he was made righteous. No, that didn't happen for 14 years after he was declared righteous or, or saved. Genesis 15, 6, God declared him righteous. And uh, 14 years later, Genesis 17, verse 24, God told him to be circumcised. And I'm convinced God did that because he didn't want to confuse. If the Lord had said, Abraham, you have to be circumcised and then pronounced him righteous, we would all have assumed, well, circumcision is necessary for salvation. But God purposely declared him righteous 14 years before he was ever circumcised. So that we didn't confuse salvation by faith, by grace through faith, with a work. And as we said, circumcision, like water baptism, was a sign of, of a covenant. Uh, circumcision, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Water baptism, the sign of the new covenant in Christ. But these are signs. They're not the covenant. And so we've talked about that. Um, it says, when Abraham placed his faith in God... In the promise of God that God, listen, accounted it to Abraham for righteousness. As we have said before, the word accounted is the Greek word legizomai, which means to reckon, to credit, 
to impute to someone's account. It was a first century bookkeeping term. It's used 41 times in the New Testament, and Paul uses it 35 of those 41 times in his writings. In fact, he uses it 11 times, this Greek word, in Romans 4 alone. So guys, here's what we're being told. Here's what the scriptures are teaching. The moment Abraham places faith in God, a transaction took place. God took the sin of Abraham and transferred it to Christ's account, who then paid for it on Calvary's cross, and took the righteousness of Christ from his account and transferred it to Abraham's account, all because Abraham believed God. Again, verse 3, he believed and God accounted it to him, imputed it to him for righteousness. Uh, we studied this Sunday in our study in Galatians, which has never happened before in all these years, um, where our Sunday study and our Wednesday study overlapped. I'm looking at the same scriptures, the same ideas I just taught on Sunday. And I didn't want to just duplicate the study because you guys were all there. So I prayed a lot and tried to come at it from any little different nuance and direction I could so that it was kind of fresh. Um, now, I... I I am going to teach on, uh, on what Abraham believed. I'm sorry, what I, I missed something. Uh, after we talked about, once again, verse 3, how God, or Abraham believed God and was accounted him for righteousness, as we said Sunday, it begs the question, what exactly did Abraham believe that caused God to declare him righteous? Pretty important stuff. And uh, we, we just talked about that Sunday. And I'm going to teach on that again. What caused God to declare Abraham righteous, but not until we move a little farther into Romans 4. Because right in the middle of the chapter, Paul deals with this very question. So let's kind of put it on hold for just a little bit, and we'll come back to it. But again, Romans 4, verses 1 and 2. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, one pastor comments on this he said and i quote if abraham was justified by works then he would have reason for boasting he could pat himself on the back for earning a righteous standing before god but this is utterly impossible no one will ever be able to boast before god because ephesians 2 9 just told us that there is nothing in in the scriptures to indicate that abraham had any grounds for boasting and that he was justified uh, by his works. No, he was not. That's why he had no grounds to, to boast. It was not what he did. It was what God did uh, for him or what God was going to do in sending his son, Jesus Christ, which Abraham and all the Old Testament saints had the promises of this coming Messiah, Savior, who was going to die and pay for the sins of the world. And they believed looking forward. Of course, we believe looking backward at the cross. All right. Um, but again, verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Notice Paul says that Abraham didn't just believe in God. It says he believed God, which is exactly how it's translated in Galatians 3, verse 6, and in James 2, verse 23, that Abraham believed God. Look, many people believe there is a God. In other words, they believe in the existence of God. But that belief alone is not enough to save them. Because again, James said in James 2 verse 19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe that and tremble. I mean, guys, yes, of course, Abraham believed in God. But that's not the point that Paul wants to make. It's deeper than that. He believed something God had promised him way back in Genesis chapter 12 and reaffirmed in chapter 15. Turn to Genesis 12. I couldn't help but overlap some of this because you just can't get away from all of it. I just didn't want to duplicate word for words to Sunday's study. But the idea that it wasn't that Abraham just believed in God, it was that he believed God. There, there's a difference, okay? And... Um, Let's look at Genesis 12, starting with verse 1. This is where God initially gives him this promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country 
from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now several years pass, and we come to Genesis 15. And of course, the context of Genesis 15 is what happened in chapter 14. In chapter uh, Genesis 14, Abraham had defeated five kings that held his nephew Lot and his family captive. He was so wealthy, he kept his own standing militia. He had 318 trained servants. Okay? That was his own militia. These were soldiers Abraham had trained. And they stood, you know, they were his servants, but when they, he needed them for battle, they were ready. So he gets these guys together, you know, and he goes after these five kings and defeats them. Not only does he defeat them, but he says to the, uh, uh, to, I forget which uh, one it was that he was talking to, um, about the spoil. He says, I'm not going to take anything from you. I don't want you to say that you made Abraham rich. You wanted God to be the one that got glory. For Abraham's wealth and things, right? So now he's on his way home. And he's I think he's starting to worry a little bit if these five kings are going to regroup and come after him. Plus, I'm wondering if he's having second thoughts about not taking the spoil. Yeah, that was quite a bit of money. I, I don't know. Maybe I should have taken a little bit, right? I don't know. And I say that because of what happened. God appears to him in a vision in that context and assures him that he, the Lord, was his shield and his exceedingly great reward. You see it there? I'm your shield. Don't worry about these kings attacking you. And I am your exceedingly great reward. Don't worry about this earthly money. I'll take care of you. And I got a reward waiting for you in heaven you can't even imagine. All right? But the thing that Abraham wanted more than, than anything else was a son, an heir that he could pass all of the blessings God had given him down to. And so God had promised him a son earlier, but as of yet, and years had passed, as of yet, that promise had not yet been fulfilled by God. Abraham had no son. And he's lamenting that to the Lord. He's, he's lamenting it. And so God responds in Genesis 15, verse 5. He responded by bringing Abraham outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord. In this context, he believed in the promise of the Lord that he had given him. And he, God, accounted it to him for righteousness. As we have already said before, the Hebrew word translated believed. He believed in the Lord. The Hebrew word translated believe means to say amen. To say amen. In other words, God gave Abraham a promise and Abraham responded amen, which was a declaration of faith on Abraham's part. Guys, this is the first time the word believe is used in the Bible. Genesis 15, verse 6. Very important word, obviously. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that, as we said, uh, talked about the law of first mention. Whenever a major concept is mentioned first in the Bible, study that passage, it becomes the, the, the prototype for understanding every other time that word is used in the Bible. We need to understand this topic. That's why I do want to get back to revisit the idea of what, what, what exactly did Abraham believe that caused God to declare him righteous. But Paul does quote Genesis 15, 6 uh, in Galatians 3. Why don't you turn there, Galatians 3. And I want to read verses 6 and 7 and then verse 9. Because again, Paul quotes this verse, very key, uh, important verse, Genesis 15, 6. He quotes it here. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Uh, Abraham had uh, two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. They both had the blood of Abraham in their veins. They were both circumcised. Only one was saved, and the other was not. Ishmael was a work of the flesh. And God didn't even acknowledge his existence when he told Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him on a hill I'll show you in Moriah. And this is the point. Paul's 
drawing from. Because the, the Jews, the rabbis taught, as long as you had the blood of Abraham in your veins and it were circumcised in your body, that's all you need to go to heaven. You didn't even have to believe in God. You could be an atheist Jew. But Father Abraham stood outside the gates of hell to pluck any unbelieving Jews out of the line of those going in. That's what they believed. So Paul is saying, look, you know, only those who are of faith, the faith of Abraham, are sons of Abraham. Because, again, he had two sons. One was a believer and the other was not. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Blessed in what way? They're children of God by faith. Heirs of all the glory that will someday be ours as God's children in heaven. And again, people will say at this point, but what exactly did he believe? Well, we're coming to that. But for right now, it's just important that we understand that Paul, in this section, is using Abraham as an illustration of justification by faith alone. One of the great pillars of the Reformation, sola fide, by faith alone, right? And they were coming against this stuff. You think this stuff is, ran its course 2,000 years ago? No. I mean, you know, there are people uh, who are Christian churches and denominations, call themselves Christian churches and denominations, who believe that it's faith plus works that get, gets a person saved. This isn't going away. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that. I know because I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is not a cult. They believe in the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ. Cults deny both or one or both of those. But the Roman Catholic Church is a false religious system. It's not that they don't have the true gospel. They do. It's just that they add to it works which are necessary for salvation and Catholic theology. And that's what makes them a false religious system. They are doing the very thing Paul's fighting against here 2,000 years ago. And we still see it today. Again, verse 3. For what does the scriptures, the scriptures say? Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace. Grace means a gift. But as debt. And guys, we've talked about this. Uh, you know, what Paul is saying is, look, when a man works, he earns money. He gets a paycheck. In other words, his employer owes that man a debt for the work he's done. The employer doesn't hand him his check at the end of the week and say, here's a gift. If you're a boss, try that. See how, how, it, goes, <laughs> how it goes over with your employees. But if a man couldn't work for some reason and the boss went to his house, Maybe he was laid up with an injury, didn't get paid for time off, and the boss shows up at his house and hands him a check even though he didn't work. That would be a gift. That would be a gift. Look, here's Paul's point, and this is such an important point. It permeates the Bible from cover to cover. God will not be our debtor. God will not be our debtor no matter how often you go to church read the Bible, pray, witness, serve the poor in the local food pantry, or anything else you do in the way of good deeds and religious works. None of it will obligate God to you in any way, including and especially when it comes to declaring a person justified, saved. It's only by God's grace. And again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourself. I mean, that should end the conversation. You're saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves. You're not saved by what you do. It's a gift of God, not the result of anything we do, that, lest any should boast in heaven, that they deserve to be there. God doesn't want that. He wants to get the credit for all the work he does. He won't share his glory with another. We know that. That's a pretty important idea that permeates the Bible, right? I will have you turn to this one, Titus 3. This is a good one to use with your Catholic friends. And I say that in all sincerity. I'm not wanting you to be sarcastic or or have a, a gotcha moment with your Catholic friends. Um, you're not going to win anybody over if you're putting them down or talking down to them or kind of making fun out of them. We want to see them saved. Do you know that the vast majority of people in evangelical churches that are saved were once Roman Catholic? I mean, I've done it in our church. How many here were once Roman Catholic? 75% of the congregation raised their hands. I've heard it in mega churches. Same thing. 75% or so raise their hands. God's working among Catholics. We want to be a part of that. We don't want to alienate anybody. We're having a kind of a, uh, an attitude about us, right? 
But Titus 3, verse 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Washing of regeneration comes as you put your faith in Christ. That's the idea. Spirit of God comes in, cleanses you of all your sins through the blood of Christ, renews you, makes you a new creation, and so on. That's what, what Paul is saying here to a young pastor named Titus. Uh, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done that God declares us good or righteous. It's not lighting the candles and praying the rosary and doing all these other things that I was taught in Roman Catholicism I needed to do if I wanted to please God and, uh, and, and earn my righteousness. It doesn't work like that. Again, Romans 4 and 5, uh, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Guys, when Paul talks about how God will, will justify the ungodly by faith, listen, he's still talking about Abraham. Again, remembering how the rabbis, what they believed about Abraham. That he's perfect, sinless. He kept the law perfectly. And Paul is calling him ungodly. What does that mean? Well, you need to understand that Abraham, back in those days he was Abram, was an idol-worshiping Gentile. When God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, modern Iraq, to go to a land far away, we call it the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. He was an ungodly, idol-worshiping Gentile. Now, I would not, I would, you know, if you're Jewish, you could probably get away with that, and people are going to hate you, but not as much as if a Gentile tells them what, you know, let them read the scripture, let God speak to them. Um, but Paul's point is that far from being a righteous man who was so good by the life he lived and the things he did in obeying God as the rabbis taught, that on the basis of his righteousness, such a great guy, such a wonderful, perfect, sinless individual, that it was on the basis of Abraham's righteousness that God declared him righteous. And Paul said, oh no, oh no. Paul tells his readers, Abraham was ungodly when God declared him righteous, not according to his works, but according to faith. He wasn't, you know, God declared him righteous not because he was so worthy. He was an ungodly pagan when God called him. I mean, Paul is, is really hitting them between the eyes. He, he loves his Jewish countrymen, and he wants them saved. But he realizes they're so entrenched in their religion. He's got to do something pretty shocking. He's got to say things that are so shocking, they, they are shocked into reality uh, about the way they're venerating Abraham. There's a lot of churchgoers who do that, do that with Mary. You know, they're so busy trying to venerate her, and depending on the church, they got her up on the cross with Jesus, literally in Italy. He's on one side, she's on the other, and they both died for our sins. Well, that's about as blasphemous as it gets. We love Mary as evangelicals, but we love her for who she was, a very godly young woman who said when Gabriel announced to her that she had been chosen by God to be mother of Messiah, she said, I've never known a man. How could that be? I'm a virgin. Well, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of God will come upon you. Um, and that Holy One inside of you will be called the Son of God, for with God nothing is impossible. How did that beautiful, young, godly woman respond? She just bowed her head and said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be unto, done unto me according to his word. That's why we love Mary. We don't love Mary because she's perfect. Uh, and, and I don't have time to get into all that tonight. We're... We need to finish, all right? But pastor and author Warren Worsby said this, and I quote, he said, Romans 4, verse 5 makes a startling statement. God justifies, justifies the ungodly. See, the law said, I will not justify the wicked, Exodus 23, verse 7. The Old Testament judge was commanded to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. When Solomon de dedicated the temple, he asked God to condemn the wicked and justify the righteous, 1 Kings 8, verses 31 and 2. But God justifies the ungodly because there are none godly for him to justify. He put our sins on Christ's account uh, that he might put Christ's righteousness on our account, end quote. But what Worsby is getting at is what we just talked about. 
a righteous God can't just, you know, capriciously declare a, per, a sinner righteous. There has to be a basis for it because, again, justification is a legal term. Earthly judges are commanded not to justify the wicked. Why? Because they have no basis for justifying the wicked. But God does in that he put all of our sins on Christ who died in our place and this satisfied, the, the, uh, the theological term is propitiated the righteous requirements of God. And that allowed God to offer us salvation by grace through faith. But somebody had to pay for those sins. And God didn't just capriciously declare a sinner righteous. He declared them righteous when they put their faith in Christ and the blood of Christ washed their sins away and God stamped on the bottom of their ledger to tell us die paid in full. And that, that's what it's all about, right? Look, in closing, Abraham wasn't a perfect man. As you read the account of his life in the book of Genesis, he had, listened numerous lapses of faith and times of disobedience, and yet God still justified him. How? By his faith. By his faith. You see, the rabbis had it backwards. God didn't justify Abraham because he did a lot of righteous things. He lived righteously because God justified him or saved him, and that was the reason he lived a righteous life of obedience to God Genesis chapter 22, again, which happened 35 years after he was saved, all right? Look, we live righteous lives not because it earns us our salvation. It's a proof of our salvation. We, we might have gone to church before we got saved. I, I did once in a while. Um, grew up in the Catholic Church. Early on, I went to church when I was in school, Catholic school, every morning. But that was an obligation. That was a duty. I didn't look forward to it. Felt good after I had done it because, you know, you feel good when you do your duty. But I was a lost sinner trying to be religious. When I got saved, I became a new creation. And that which I used to have to do, now I love to do. That which I used to have, you know, I used to have to pray when I was a Catholic. Now I get to pray. I used to have to go to church. And now I get to go to church. Not because I'm not, not because I'm getting paid to be here. When I'm out of town, I still go to church. Okay? Um, and, that, and that's the point that Paul's making. These people had confused. That, you know, people that read James ago would see he's teaching. You have to have faith plus works. Didn't he say Abraham was justified not just by his faith, but by his works? No, no, no. He was justified by his faith. His works proved his faith was real. And that's all it was. That's all James is saying. Paul's point is the only person that God can and will justify is an ungodly person. Romans 5, verse 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for righteous people. He died for sinners. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Look, a person can't get saved until they first realize they're lost, right? I mean, a person will not see their need for a Savior until they first see themselves as sinners. That's why Paul spent the first, what, three chapters basically in Romans? He was laying the groundwork that, look, you're not righteous. I don't care if you're moral, if you're religious. I don't care what you do in your own strength. You are not righteous. You're condemned by God. Because he had to prove to his readers and the whole world that reads Romans, there are none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners. And until a person sees themselves as a sinner, they'll never see their need for a Savior. And that's why Paul transitions then from the first section into the second session, section. Okay, Paul, you've proven to me I'm a, I'm a sinner, a lost sinner, hopeless. What now? How do I get saved? Well, here, let me tell you starting with chapter 3, verse 21. talks about justification. Guys, the world is full of people that think they're good people. That's the problem. That's the problem. In fact, they think they're so good that God will accept them into heaven someday. Proverbs 20, verse 6. Pretty much everyone proclaims each his own goodness. Very hard to find a sinner who acknowledges they're sinners. Well, they might acknowledge it, but they still think they're not as bad as others. And I know I'm a sinner, but... I'm a good sinner, um, you know, um, and I still think God's going to accept me into heaven. But I'm not as bad as that guy. 
saw in the news last night. Uh, yeah, well, you might not be as bad as him or her, but are you as good as Jesus? Because he's the standard. Of course not. Of course not. Look, Abraham did not work for his salvation, and he certainly wasn't good enough to earn it. In other words, he wasn't morally sinless and perfect. He simply believed the promise of God that he would send a Messiah someday who would be a descendant of Abraham and that this Messiah, the Savior, would die to pay for our sins and that all who believe in him would allow would then allow God to declare them righteous. Put your faith in Christ, God declares us righteous. It was Jesus who did the work on Calvary's cross. His righteousness was put to Abraham's account even as it's put to our account when we receive Jesus as our Savior. I'll end with John 3.16. You all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell but have everlasting life. That's justification by faith. And that's what Paul wanted to push so... Um, he was pushing it so hard because he knew. He was living in a world, which we're living in, where you either had your pagans, well, you, you had your um, overt sinners who wanted nothing to do with any gods, or you had your pagan religious people who believed that through their works and offerings and to the various gods, they were made righteous. And this even seeped into the church because the Judaizers helped us be promoted. That, yeah, you want to be saved you want to be a christian yeah you got to put your faith in jesus but then you have to do works get water baptized and circumcised if you're jewish and keep the law and so you got to become a jew first before you can become a christian and uh, that's that's sad we'll, we'll leave it there and we will pick it up next time and uh, there's a lot more that paul wants to say that we need to hear so uh, god willing we'll come back next week and we'll pick up our study father we thank you lord for your grace we thank you that the message of the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, is that sinners are declared righteous, just, not by the works they do, but by the faith they have. Faith in Jesus who paid the price, lived the perfect life, and once we put our faith in him, his blood washes us clean, and we are placed in him. And God no longer sees us, he sees Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for that truth. And we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.